Welcome back to Los Nazarenos. Los Nazarenos, welcome back. Los Nazarenos. Um, so, today we are joined by a very special guest, uh, David Inchauskas, SJ, Society of Jesus. Uh, mm-hmm. That means Jesuits. Um, did I get it right, Inchauskas? That is amazingly right. Yes, Chowskis. It's only because I've listened to you say it so many times on your (laughs) podcast. Um, So uh, David is a regent at Xavier University, and um, he is the host of the Liberation Theology podcast. So it's, uh, I know this season we've been talking a lot about um, kind of Latin American theology and ecclesiology. And I don't think you can mm-hmm. talk about it without talking about liberation theology. Um, so, uh, David, is there anything else we should know about you before we dive into our topic for the podcast? Well, I would say this regarding my last name. I know that my mother would tell me when I was growing up that it took her about two months in order to get that last name down, you know, after she <laughs> married my father. And so the spelling, it's just incredible. So, so, uh, so thank, thank y'all for getting that right. Uh, yeah, I am at Xavier. I teach philosophy and Spanish. And I'm in my third year in the Jesuit uh, formation process that we call Regency. This is kind of the last step before we go on to theology studies. And so this year I'm kind of uh, in my victory lap, as it were, as Xavier, (laughs) preparing to move on to to some further studies in theology. Awesome. Um, I thought, oh, yeah. And so if if you and Kerwin want to just like start talking in Spanish and leave me behind, like that is, <laughs> that is totally okay too. That's sometimes we do that. <laughs> Vámonos pues. <laughs> Vámonos. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. So, so like uh, we've been doing this season, we're dedicating about half of our season to Latin American theology and ecclesiology. And so we talked about um, Medellin and the Selam bishops and kind of their vision. And where we left off was um, their kind of this idea of follow through to like, I don't know, make, make good things happen or improve the situation. And so we kind of thought that two people who are kind of exemplars of doing good things in the Latin American context um, are Oscar Romero and Ignacio Eacaria. Um, and so David's here to just take us on a deep dive with them. And so, um, but maybe before we get started, um, David, what would be like a quick definition for liberation theology? Because that's like the lens we're looking through. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that I'll go with uh, Gustavo Gutierrez on this one. And he talks about liberation theology as theological reflection on the revolutionary movement Mm -hmm. of the oppressed towards their liberation. And I would maybe add to that, that I think that not only is reflection part of the liberation theology process, but also that allyship, you know, Mm -hmm. in that the one who is doing the theology, uh, first and foremost, there's the protagonism of the poor, right? That's the ecclesial base communities, that sense that, uh, Folks in their communities are interpreting the scriptures directly and then uh, in relationship, that living dialectical relationship with their lives. But also the theologian is mm-hmm. kind of casting the theologian's lot with the oppressed, uh, allying uh, oneself with the oppressed for the sake of liberation. Yeah, I think that's something we kind of like maybe uh, we think theology is just like for the people or professors locked in their offices at universities like but really we get this kind of like public theology almost and um where like just the everyday people like uh, folks having a bible study can be theology absolutely and i think you know, regarding that uh the ivory tower theologian <laughs> yeah. i think you know, we have two great examples today and the people that we're going to discuss because um you know, like R- Romero, you know, he studied uh, theology in Rome with uh, with Paul the Sixth, kind of amazingly, as was <laughs> one of his teachers, uh, and then also Ea Correa, a, a professor of philosophy and theology, uh, 
But central, of course, to their praxis was what Pope Francis, in fact, talks about a lot recently, which is the uh, pastor should smell like the sheep. And yeah. so, too, we could say mm -hmm. the theologian should smell like the sheep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, the, maybe this is like I, we probably don't have we could talk about this for hours and hours, but <laughs> if we could do like, or what, so in general, like what are, and maybe we could take one at a time, like what are Romero and Aeacurea's stories? Like um, what, what's up with them? What's their deal? <laughs> yeah. Why do, we, why do we know their names? <laughs> yeah, no, I'd be happy to maybe begin first things first, maybe with, with Romero and that chronologically, you know, yeah. born first. So, <laughs> you know, this, uh, in 1917, 1917, now he, he entered the seminary when he was so young, he, he entered, I think when he was 13 or 14 years old into a minor seminary, which is just incredible to think about someone who's like in junior <laughs> yeah. high or high school making that choice. Right. But then, yeah, then he went off uh, eventually to, to Rome, in fact, to study with Paul VI, as I mentioned. And then he came back and he had a first assignment. He's from uh, El, El Salvador itself. Mm -hmm. He was born in Ciudad Barrios, which is more of a provincial town in the northeast, more or less section of, uh, of El Salvador. So he came back for uh, an assignment at the cathedral parish uh, in a provincial town, and then he was made the auxiliary uh, bishop of, uh, of San Salvador. Then he was uh, made the bishop of another provincial town, and then eventually he was uh, made archbishop of mm -hmm. San Salvador. And I think curious that around the time that he was made Archbishop of San Salvador is when he had this uh, key moment in his life, which was the murder of Father Rutilio Grande, right? This was a Jesuit, also uh, a native Salvadoran, who was working in this parish, which was called Aguilares, uh, in the town of Aguilares in, in El Salvador. And one of the big things for for Grande, you know, towards the beginning, he was a, he was a very effective pastor, kind of at organizing the community. Uh, but then I think Rutilio Grande got the sense that the people, uh, especially the peasant campesino community, was struggling uh, immensely, and especially that there, you know, there were issues with land ownership, there were uh, issues with uh, union organizing. And so Grande kind of cast his lot with one of these uh, peasant uh, organizations uh, that was organizing against the land owners. And that began to lead to, you know, some, some trouble, some uh, it, where, of course, the powerful do not like it when yeah. the church leaders who, yeah. <laughs> who are oftentimes in their pocket, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, then begin to say the exact opposite, right? And it became so intense, uh, Rutilio Grande's ministry in Aguilares, that actually Ignacio Eacria himself was, was the formation director of some of the Jesuits at that time. And he would send uh, young Jesuits in formation to Aguilares, go and learn what Rutilio Grande is doing, because mm. he's doing some cool stuff over there. Well, some of those seminarians um, became like union, like they became union leaders, like they, they were leaders in the union, they were organizing uh, and that was really taking up a lot of their time, so much so that Ea Korea was like, they're getting a little bit too much into this. You know, where's the religious component of their yeah. vocation going? And many of them eventually did leave the Jesuits and join the guerrilla forces, mm. right? So I think we have to recognize at the time, maybe sometimes people like to portray the situation as, well, you know, well, the Jesuits were always, you know, they were on the side of the poor, but they were always very peaceful. And maybe the Society of Jesus itself, but there, it was the case that some seminarians and, and priests uh, in Central America at that time, including in Aguilares, were very militant, you know, mm -hmm. and ended up leaving and, and joining the guerrilla ranks. Now, this, of course, Romero was one of the people who was very skeptical of Aguilares. He was um, referred to as y'all were just talking about Medellin. Many people conceived of Romero as an anti-Medellin bishop. Mm -hmm. You know, he was known as being maybe a little bit more on the conservative side. 
Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but yeah. he, so, but then Rutilio Grande, um, along with two of his companions in 1977 was, uh, was assassinated. Um, and, and so Romero was the archbishop and, you know, I, traditionally the idea is the archbishop will preside at the funeral of one of the priests who is assassinated. Right. And so he goes to, uh, the funeral of Rutilio Grande, and he's just heartbroken, you know, at the loss of one of his priests, you know, a guy who maybe he didn't agree with on everything, but uh, who, who was one of his men, one, one, of, yeah. uh, one of the people, the leaders of his flock. And so at that time, after that, he just asked the church in Aguilares, um, could you, what do we, where do we go from here? Uh, what, what needs to happen in the wake of this? Um, well, what ended up happening in the wake of it was that Aguilares was basically labeled. This is one of the um, the hubs of the guerrilla activity mm-hmm. in El Salvador at that time. And so there was an event a few months later that just led to the massive slaughter of, of tons of, uh, I, I think, maybe about 300 or so um, uh, campesinos uh, in Aguilares. So then... The question, and then because of that uh, massacre, the uh, the three Jesuits who were working in Aguilares had to go into exile, mm-hmm. um, and so they were left without a parish priest. And and Romero, uh, I think, due to this conversion moment uh, with Rutilio Grande, said, "No, Aguilares is getting another pastor. We're going to install another Jesuit." All right. And so he, <laughs> he went out there and installed another Jesuit and said, not only that, because um, it was forbidden for people from outside Aguilares to go into Aguilares. So Romero, one of his first acts of resistance, we could say, um, uh, post Rutilio Grande was precisely returning to Aguilares to install a new pastor and then to engage in a Eucharistic procession outside of the church uh, in the face of the military leaders who were just staring him down the whole mm-hmm. time. And he resolutely was like, no, uh, we're going to do this. And another consequence of Rutilio Grande's death uh, was that Romero said, I'm not going to participate in any public functions with the state mm-hmm. until the Rutilio Grande case is solved. What we, I want to know what happened, what are the details, and I'm not going to get any BS what happened? I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to collaborate with the government uh, anymore until we find out. Uh, so then maybe uh, leading up to, to you know, his death in, in 1980, what, what happened there? So he did then begin to take what, what we could call it a more overt stance against the government, the government and against like the social political dynamics. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's kind of a debate. (laughs) The the Jesuits, I think, like myself, we like to point out the Rutilio Grande moment, right? Because Uh he's Jesuit. And we're like, oh, Rutilio was the reason why Romero is the way (laughs) that he is. He's just a great person because of Rutilio. Well, it's more complicated. Um, (laughs) one One of the things that many people point out is that Romero seemingly kind of always had a heart for the poor in a personal way. Mm-hmm. You know, he was that pastor who was with the, with the poor accompanying, uh, smelled like the sheep, but it, it wasn't always the case that he took a condemning stance mm-hmm. of the social, economic, political. Yeah. And it seems that the grande moment led him to that. Um, so we can speak about, maybe he always had the personal, but the political uh, came with yeah. Grande. So there, there was a coup, uh, interestingly called the Uka coup, which maybe we can return to with Korea. The Uka <laughs> is in the Central American University run by the Jesuits, um, where uh, there was a military coup, but it was one of these strange kind of reformist progressive military coups, where it was moving from like a bad conservative dictatorship situation to a, the military is is going to like benevolently come in and, and run. And they decided <laughs> to form a five-person junta uh, in 1979. And the president of the UCA left the UCA presidency to become one of those five. 
serving in the new military <laughs> progressive uh, reformist military junta. Uh, junta. Uh, so the UCA was then seen as uh, as leftist, we could say, uh-huh. because of this association with with the, the UCA coup. Well, that UCA coup did not last very long. I think it was maybe about 10 weeks. Those five ruled. Uh, and then the more conservative wing of the military uh, did, you know, the auto golpe, as they say in Spanish, right? The self coup. I mean, in the yeah. sense that they're just like, okay, we're done. We're not going to, we're not having these five anymore. Um, and when that military faction came into power, that's when things started really to turn uh, south for the Jesuits and, um, and Romero in the sense that. Uh, now, those who were labeling and always wanted to place the blame on the UCA uh, were able to point to Mayorga, who is the president, and say, look, you, you, all, you all along have been fostering, you know, these elements of incivility and communism and Marxism in our society. And so um, you got to go. So a lot, some people don't know that you know, of course, the Air Korea assassination uh, with its companions happened in 1989. But in already in 1980, in the weeks leading up to Romero's assassination, there was a bombing at the UCA. Mm. Um, uh, I believe one student, uh, a mathematics student, was killed in that bombing. And then also the Jesuit residence was littered with, I think, a, about 120 bullets at one mm-hmm. point. Uh, where wow. Ea Korea lived this, nine years, you know, before eventually he was to be assassinated. So this is when some uh, elements of the Civil War really started to, to kick up. Um, but I would I would say one more thing, uh, rounding out uh, Romero would be, uh, and, and this is something, again, that maybe some people aren't aware of, but is a huge part of his story, I would mm-hmm. say, especially for those of us who are in the United States, would be his letter to Jimmy Carter. Uh, mm-hmm. That he wrote in February February seventeenth of nineteen eighty. So this is uh, shortly bef- uh, a month before he was to be assassinated. Uh, the Carter presidency was considering renewing military aid to the government of El Salvador, um, and he writes this letter, very powerful letter, uh, downloadable on the internet. But the part that that is really moving to me is he says to the president, "Because you are a Christian." And because you have shown that you want to defend human rights, I'm going to explain to you why you should not send this military aid. Mm. And he makes really two demands in that letter. He says, I, I ask that you uh, forbid that military aid be given to the Salvadoran government and that you guarantee that your government will not intervene directly or indirectly with military, economic, diplomatic or other pressures in determining the destiny of the Salvadoran people. Right. So it's like, whew. and then you think about that in terms of, you know, today and what the U.S. Yeah. government continues to do all around the world. And you're like, right. wow, I wish that we had bishops like Romero. Yeah, uh, and, and there are some wonderful bishops who are doing it. But, you know, that, that a lot aren't. <laughs> yeah. you, see, you see Romero's just whew, uh, so clear, so clear. And, and that's where you get the Medellin and the Puebla, because part of Medellin and Puebla, right. they were very clear. Self-determination. Is, yeah. is is something yeah. that we need to, as bishops, uh, be defending. Did uh, do we know what Jimmy Carter did with that letter? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, sure. I know he didn't pay attention to it. He okay. didn't. Right. Read it, but <laughs> yeah, I wonder I, if it's kept somewhere, you know, in some yeah. pile in a the basement office of the Pentagon or something. I just, like that. I imagine if it were a year later and it would be Reagan, Reagan would have like crumpled it and lit it on fire and. <laughs> And that's essentially what what happened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So, um, yeah. So then, like, we have Oscar Romero is, for lack of a better term, martyred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so that was in 1980. And that's right. In dramatic fashion, <laughs> we might add. That- that's right. Yeah. And I, I, didn't, I didn't even mention that, but uh, the sense that, and, and it's powerful too, in the sense that I've been to this site uh, on two occasions, the place where mm-hmm. Romero was martyred. So yeah, he was celebrating mass at a, a hospital, uh, at the hospital, at a hospital yeah. of all places. Mm-hmm. You know, he has this, he had this little house again, and this is 
the archbishop <laughs> who is living in this tiny little house, you know, alongside a hospital, you know, where, where religious sisters were working at this hospital and um, so amazing, you know, and the, the religious sisters are still there and they have the care of his house mm. and, you know, people will go and mm. visit and see. And, but he was saying this, he was saying the mass and he was shot uh, on the altar, you know, and, and that's another thing where, Again, the images from that moment are there, very powerful meditative images, you know, for those who can can take some gore. But it, yeah. you know, you see his blood being spilt literally on the altar. And we talk about in the sanctuary that Jesus yeah. Christ and in, in Christian theology being the you know, the blood of the lamb, this kind of sacrificial offering. And and Romero said uh, that if I die, I will be resurrected in the people. And, and, and I think that is vindicated in the sense that, um, that Romero is beloved by, by the Americas. I think you, you see these t-shirts that say San Oscar Romero de las Americas, uh, which are, are, you know, you love to see someone with that t-shirt on. You're like, yes, you yeah. get it. Um, <laughs> you get the power of Romero. But I was, it's curious in that the last time was in El Salvador, I was with some UCA students um, who were taking us around and they said that they felt that many people did not know, uh, young people did not know who Romero was. They're like mm -hmm. at the UCA, you know, we know some of mm -hmm. us know we're students, but they're like, the story is not told. People do not want to talk about the civil war. The, I mean, it was a horrible, horrible war. Uh, naturally, maybe people don't want to talk about it, but um, even Romero is caught up in the history of the war because still to this day, I mean, now we, in El Salvador, there's Nayib Bukele, who is interesting, but he, you know, broke this model of the two parties that emerged from the civil war have been the two parties that have dominated Salvadoran politics, you know, to this day, up until now Nayib Bukele. Mm -hmm. um, so he has he I think some people still read him in the light of, um, you know, crazy, uh, because I would say this has been pointed out many times. We think we can think of Romero as you know, he wasn't a Marxist, um, certainly not. He he was maybe a social Democrat liberal, you know, mm -hmm. kind of figure. He, he wasn't a guerrilla warrior yeah. <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> Um, so he was a, he was a leftist moderate, we could say, um, which at that time, you know, got him killed yeah. for saying basic things like, uh, don't slaughter, um, innocent campesinos, you know, which was happening, mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, so it is sad and, and it's just to see, unfortunately that legacy, but in some ways I feel like sometimes uh, folks on the left in the United States, um, really, really feel a resonance with Romero precisely because of his denunciation of the, the U.S. Uh, military, you know, uh, industrial complex yeah. um, that, that we ourselves also uh, denounce. Well, so what's uh, moving from one martyr to the next? Um, tell us a little bit about Ea Korea. I think that's yeah. even even more obscure to people, and I. But I think he's got, he's just as important almost. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, Ea Korea is huge, uh, absolutely. And I would say, personally, I would say of the Jesuits who are my heroes in the Society of Jesus, Ea Korea is the the one. Right. Okay. I try to live out as best as I can the vocation of Ea Korea in my own way. And I would say one of the reasons for that is precisely because Ea Korea is, maybe some people don't know this, but he's not from El Salvador, right? Mm -hmm. He's a, he's a Spaniard uh, or a Basque. <laughs> uh, so he was, he was born in Bilbao in 1930. And so... I think we see in him just in that basic fact of his life that he was someone who was, you know, born from this uh, in Spain, you know, part of this imperial core, this group mm -hmm. of colonizing countries. The, the same country that colonized El Salvador and led to many of, you know, of course, the history of of domination of colonialism and neocolonialism. And yet 
you know, he joined the Jesuits at the age of 17. And so still so young. Bit, Another <laughs> young 13 one. or 14. You know, I don't That's know if he true. was committed as Romero, yeah. but he, <laughs> at 17, he entered. And, and now two years later, like 19, he is sent to uh, El Salvador, right? So, and this is amazing in, in our context today, it's almost uh, unthinkable, you know, that this something like this would happen in the Society of Jesus uh, today. Because he was sent there really to live and work for the next mm-hmm. uh, 42 years of his life. Though the curious thing is that he, he did go back to Europe to study and he studied with two of the greats. I mean, I think a distinction we can make between, you know, Romero and Ea Correa would be Romero was a parish priest, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he entered a, the diocesan seminary. He eventually was elevated to be a bishop. Ea Korea was a Jesuit <laughs> and he was very intellectual, right? Yeah. He, and so he studied in Germany with Karl Rahner. Oh man. <laughs> so big, like, wow. huge, the big guns. Yeah. Like, yeah literally with Karl Rahner, <laughs> like, like while he was alive, right? Yeah. In his classrooms yeah. <laughs> in Germany. And then he, he wanted to study uh, Javier Subiri, uh, this influential Catholic philosopher uh, who is just amazing. Uh, but, but he, he was like, I know that Zubidi is a little, uh, rough to get as your thesis advisor, like, or for your <laughs> dissertation. Right. And so he said, I'm just going like, to go to his house. So he, <laughs> so he went to his house and, uh, and I think in Bilbao, if I don't, if I'm not wrong, I think Zubidi was from Bilbao anyways, wherever it was, he went to his house and, uh, just was like, I need to, uh, talk to, to, uh, to Zubidi. And the, the whoever it was who opened the door was like, oh, he doesn't normally receive anyone. <laughs> just knocks on the door of his house. But then I guess right, yeah. Zubidi found out that he was a Jesuit and said, oh, you know, if it's a Jesuit, then OK, let him in. <laughs> and so he he wrote his uh, his philosophy dissertation on Zubidi. So he was uh, from the theological side, very much so influenced by Rahner and from the philosophy side, very much so influenced by Zubidi. I think you can see that in his work. But mm. so that he returned then uh, after all of his doctoral studies in Europe, right, to uh, an El Salvador in which the Jesuits were undergoing massive changes at that time. There were kind of, and it's an, it's an exaggeration, but let's just say there were two factions. All right. Mm. There's kind of the old Spanish guard um, Spanish Jesuits who were missionaries and who have held the leadership positions in, in the Central American province, you know, as long as time can tell. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and the Central American province didn't even exist. You know, it was basically a, a Jesuit colony, colony you know, mm. we could say uh, of the Spanish province of the Jesuits. Um, and but there were some younger Jesuits and also some native uh, uh, Salvadoran Jesuits like Rutilio Grande, who were, who wanted to see a shift and a shift that corresponded to two things, to Vatican II, mm-hmm. and then also to, um, well, the preferential option for the poor, we could say, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was developing theologically, you know, at that time, because Ea Correa really pointed out uh, cause you know, he's freshly minted with his doctorate and you know, he comes yeah. back. Yes. authority, <laughs> right? ego. Uh, he was appointed, you know, you know, people, people like to use trusted in the province and, and they, they gave him positions in the Jesuits of, of a certain amount of authority. And so he was one of the leaders of this influential retreat amongst the Jesuits at which he kind of convinced, you know, in a prayerful way, prayerfully convinced <laughs> along with others, um, the idea that we need to make a shift from ministries that primarily serve the rich yeah. to ministries that primarily are in solidarity with the poor. Huge. And then he <laughs> was later to, I think so, someone named Jesus said something like that. You, right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Rediscover Jesus, um, his book, but it may right. not be the same book. That yeah. Was yeah. <laughs> we don't get sponsored by that person, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. There we go. Yeah. They're like, they're on, on, on that podcast. They were talking yeah. about my book, Rediscover Jesus. I, I don't know that I want to be sponsored by them. 
right <laughs> probably not but uh so yeah yeah so big though because also a korea was one of the we could say founding members uh of the uka because mm-hmm. i mean there was no uka before the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. the central american university he was one of the founding members now we can recall that there was the uka coup in 1979 and that mayorga uh who uh took one of the five positions in the junta. Well, A. Korea replaced him as the rector of the Central American University. And one of the things that A. Korea was big on, he kind of put his foot down on some topics. Now, to get a university going, you kind of have to have money, right? (laughs) You have to have uh, maybe international grants, which they got, you know, grants from the United States, like A. Korea traveled to the United States to get grants. He uh, took money from some of the bourgeoisie of El Salvador to get the university going. Uh, not, I mean, not only he, but, you know, the founding members, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, but, but progressively, I think A. Korea came to say like, well, well mm, on certain things, we need to put our foot down. Like, so when it comes to some things that have to do with agrarian reform, that was a big agrarian reform. Uh, at one point, there was a meeting, a governmental meeting um, between some of the landowners and, and, and government officials. And they said, uh, oh, well, let's invite the UCA people. They'll be very favorable. They're in our pocket, right? <laughs> some of us gave money to the UCA. Um, and, and they'll convince that we should be lighter on the whole agrarian reform situation. Well, uh, the UCA kind of put their foot down on that and said, no, we're going to stand with the peasants, uh, on this occasion. And so the UCA began to kind of alienate, we could say some of the very donors who helped to found the university. And then uh, apart from that, um, we could say there was the whole affiliation between what we could say is more of that that junta is kind of the the christian democratic line of Mm -hmm. government so um so it's not you know not quite uh socialist but it may be social democrat e Mm -hmm. um and what which at that time again is going to be labeled communist even though it's it's not even close um to to communism we could say it was and so that that was key. Aya Korea throughout was part of negotiations trying to get uh, peace. Um, but I think certainly when that more conservative group of generals, uh, military folks took over in the post-coup coup, then uh, it, the, the, the writing was on the wall that eventually, you know, I think Aya Korea, like Romero, kind of knew that if I continue doing and saying these things, um, that there, there's going to be consequences. Now, a curious thing is that Aya Korea gave a speech at uh, Santa Clara University. Another uh, great Je- Jesuit school. Another great Jesuit school <laughs> in the Silicon Valley. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so Aya Korea gives a speech there. So it's, this is like, you know, he's, he was going to tell him like it was a little bit. And uh-huh. <laughs> he basically says, I know Our I'm American speaking to this. I'm right <laughs> to this, you know, United States and Californian of all yeah. <laughs> United States places. Right. Um, God bless the Californians. And so <laughs> but basically what he says, this is a powerful line uh, from that. I'll just paraphrase it. He says uh, what Romero showed us was that how could it be that thousands of peasants in El Salvador are dying every day in this conflict. Some of them are slaughtered, but very few of our priests, let alone bishops, are being slaughtered with the people. Mm -hmm. And what Romero showed us is that to be the shepherd of your sheep, you have to be like Jesus, right? And Jesus was willing to lay down his life for his friends as he taught. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the, isn't that that's the thing that people hate about the church. Right. They hate that. Right. I mean, OK, fine. Maybe. Well, some of the ideals, maybe people are like, I don't know about those ideals, but there's some of the ideals of the church that are very noble and beautiful uh, and sacrificial and loving. But then who does them? Right. Who does mm-hmm. them? It seems like the very people who are preaching them are the next day or a few moments later. I mean, how many news stories are there uh, about different things like that? So, yeah. Well, that's then you what, have Romero. That's what amazes me is that 
like especially with these figures and liberation theology is like it's the gospel and it, it is just almost plain and simple like this is how you apply the gospel today like in this part of the world <laughs> that's that's absolutely right that's absolutely right i mean because there is uh you know uh blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of god right and that is is yours is the kingdom of god yeah. right it's a present it's a present and right. people may want to put that off into the future you know into the afterlife and and you know i believe in the afterlife i think that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead and whatnot but i also believe that like vatican ii said and like medellin and puebla said that is in no way uh, meant to be an excuse or an opiate for people to then therefore turn around and say, well, I guess we don't have to act very much at this yeah, point yeah. because uh, everything is going to be solved in heaven. No, mm -hmm. that is, is so powerful. Uh, the being, uh, yeah. this is how the church is called to be and do not in the future. It's like now. Yeah. It's a, that like the now and not yet. Of the, that's right that's right yeah the, the reign of theological. god <laughs> and and that's right and that's the the thing with liberation theology is that i i speak in my podcast about utopia and prophecy and that's precisely what it is right because mm -hmm. there's i mean i don't know about y'all but part of me thinks that is there going to be a time on this planet earth when everything in every way at all times is 100% perfect forever. Mm -hmm. And I, my thought is like, no, probably not. <laughs> you know, I know I'm, real I'm, <laughs> I kind of have, I make mistakes every yeah, day. Right? Yeah. I all this <laughs> right. like, oh my God. So, you know, um, however, we have this vision, right? And what, like what Pope Francis says, we have a utopian vision. That's mm -hmm. like a final cause in Evangelii Gaudium. He says, it's like a final cause that's drawing us toward itself. So it's, it's like the, the vision, I mean, for the, the Marxist, right, we think it's thought of in terms of, you know, the communist society, which is stateless and classless, right? Um, now, you know, isn't that a utopian dream? I mean, well, it's yeah. not in the present. <laughs> I don't know. I look around, where's your stateless, classless society? Yeah. It's not here. <laughs> it's aspirational. But you have to have aspirations, right, yeah. for that not yet. Right. In order for your already to be moving in a positive direction, you have to have a little bit of a sense of the not yet. Definitely. Right. Yeah. And I just think like going back to like what, what, what was mentioned before, it seems like on paper, right, we have these like concepts of Medellin and I like Selam is like wonderful. But then it's like, uh, you know, how how does like Romero and Ecuria, uh, like how do they try to communicate or even initiate this like in like through their lives and i think you've given great examples of how they do it right because not only like they not only do they live it through their life and example but also like through what they say i like just like the examples that you mentioned of like romero and how he's just like hey jimmy carter please don't send any more aid because like how are we going to figure it out you know and that comes like straight from like medellin yeah, that's that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And I think that that denunciation, you know, components mm -hmm. and then the, denun the, denun the denunciation component also comes with these very specific actions, you know, that they're taking and and all that ultimately led to their lives being lost. Because I think when we look at the lives being lost, this is a testament to the fact that they were grinding you know, against the elite, mm -hmm. because the, I mean, maybe to turn to Aakaria's uh, death, which, which is a powerful one for me in the sense that in the very rooms of the Jesuit residents from which the, the six uh, Jesuits and two co uh, companions were, were sleeping that night, you know, I've, I've slept in those rooms mm -hmm. um, at the Uka. You know, if you're a Jesuit visiting the Uka today, uh, they will, put you up in those rooms because most people who come to stay as guests at the Uka come on a pilgrimage really yeah. to this site, which is a monumental uh, site for the contemporary society of Jesus. Right. So, and, and this is on, at, you know, at 1 AM at 1 AM on November 16th, 1989, 300 
300 Salvadoran soldiers, right? Oh basically surround the Uca, Oof. right? And 300. And you're like, I, I mean, they didn't find, uh, I don't think any of these Jesuits had guns. I don't think, yeah. like, what is, what is the, right. you know, they're, it's totally overblown. But one of the reasons why it was overblown was because they wanted to simulate that a battle had happened mm-hmm. on the campus, right? And that the, the National Liberation Front uh, was actually the ones who had murdered uh, the Jesuits for being traitors to their uh, to the guerrilla movements. Mm-hmm. I don't know for being too centrist or whatever. But of course, it was the right wing forces uh, that were the ones who perpetrate, perpetrated this crime, and you know basically knocked on the door. You know, uh, Segundo Montes uh, opened the door. Some of the Jesuits were dragged out into the lawn. And were were executed like execution style. Mm-hmm. We're talking uh, kneeling down, bullet in the back of the head, or lying down, bullet in the back of the head, and were killed precisely in this way of bullet in the head, with the idea <laughs> being that constantly the Salvadoran military officials would say that the Jesuits are the brains of the revolution. You know, they're, they're the ones who are the ideologues behind the guerrilla warfare. And they're the ones who are constantly apologizing, mm-hmm. you know, for the guerrilla violence uh, and giving justifications you know, as to why the poor should be living, I guess. Yeah. So... Um, God, God forbid the poor. God forbid right the live. poor live. <laughs> yeah, are allowed to live, and so uh, yeah, and and the 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 horrible and tragic. One of the hor- I mean, there's many horrible and tragic things about it, but one of the things that's horrible and tragic about it would be that the um, the housekeeper and her daughter um, were you know, normally they did not stay at the Jesuit residence. You know, it's not like, for example, like uh, at the Jesuit residence in Xavier, you know, it would, it would be very strange for anyone yeah. who worked in the house <laughs> or with us to like sleep overnight, right. in the same house. Uh, that was the same case there. But the, the case uh, was that the neighborhood where they were living was a neighborhood that was undergoing a lot of urban uh, guerrilla warfare and um, conflicts, you know, between, uh, the guerrillas and the military. And so they felt like it was unsafe. So mm-hmm. they had asked, you know, could we stay with, you know, in the Jesuit, in the Jesuit compound, essentially, where uh, maybe they felt like it would be safer, like, oh, they probably won't go in there and anything would happen there. But of course it did, you know, and they found uh, these two women and, and, uh, and killed them as well. And so Another moving detail uh, would be that um, there was a found uh, amongst the uh, the bodies a book, uh, and and this book was the Jurgen uh, Moltmann's book, the Crucified God, um, and so curious. And then and then this book also was stained with blood, and so if you go to the Uka, you can see in the museum there this book. Um, uh, the crucified God, you know, stained with, with the blood of the martyrs. And you look at that and you just say, wow, this is um, my, my great role model in the Jesuits. Uh, another one who is Alberto Hurtado, a Chilean mm-hmm. a Jesuit saint. And he would always say that our call as Christians is to be, well, what Christians means, a little Christ. Yeah. Right. And you see that in that book, right, very clearly that these men were imitating their savior, their God, who was a crucified God. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very quick tangent. Are you a Rage Against the Machine fan? I don't think that I even know what Rage Against oh, the Machine man. is. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. So they're, they're a band. Is it a band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, when you said Bold in the Head, they have a song called Bold in the Head. They're very, I mean, they in the 90s, they like went and played a concert in Cuba and stuff that so that um their their guitarist has a show on Sirius called Radio Commandante ah. R- Rage Against the Machine there I don't know it just 
you like in in the course of talking about Aya Korea's assassination, like you said, like four of their song titles. So, <laughs> so wow, I will have to give that group a listen. <laughs> they're, they're very they're very heavy. They're ve- they're very intense, but I I love them. you know. Now that you mention it, I mean, we were just speaking about the Oscar Romero uh, T-shirts. And I think that also I've seen many, I I think I've seen Rage Against the Machine, maybe uh, T-shirts as well out there. You know, various college students who maybe are enjoying that music. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Tangent over. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That was a good one. So let's move on to our next thing. You you got this one, Kerwin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, uh, what what do you think that we can learn from both Romero and Aya that could help us like be better disciples of Christ? Mm. Well, starting with Aya I would say that the thing that inspires me about Aya would be the intellectual uh, component and the intellectual component in service of liberation, right? Because I would say like for me as a university professor, as someone who does research and teaching, Aya Korea was keen on our education being for the sake of liberation, right? And so I think that's huge. Maybe for those teachers out there and students out there, I think to kind of constantly be asking ourselves that question, right? Because we're living in a society that is alienated, right? From itself. Yeah. Uh, school <laughs> is an alienating experience. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm speaking at the psychological level, but also at the economic level as well. Um, school is an alienating experience and work is an alienating experience, right? And even sometimes teaching can be an alienating experience when you are have, you're meant to teach these topics that are maybe prescribed or you have to teach to the test or you know whatever it is in your discipline and Aya Korea was big on the fact that it's kind of like the three questions that St Ignatius of Loyola has us ask ourselves in the exercises what have i done for christ what am i doing for christ what will i do for christ Aya Korea i think leads us to ask a similar question, which is something like, what am I, what, what have I done for the poor Christ? Or what have I done for the reign of God? Mm-hmm. Uh, what am I doing for the reign of God? What will I do for the reign of God? And to let these questions guide our prayer and our action, right? I would say like in my spirituality, one of the best prayer moments that I have is I remember these moments of my life when I have felt uh, like a revolutionary, you know, like I felt yeah. like I am in solidarity with this movement of the people with the masses. Right. And, and just to return to those moments in prayer and reflect on your history and be like, well, this is what I've done. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. This is what I am called to be doing. Right. And so yeah. it, it's amazing to me that Aya Korea and people like to point this out for Aya Korea, like within the Jesuits, I mean, he could have been a cushy, you know, chair or, you know, uh, endowed uh, professor of Karl Rahner at Fordham University or, you know, yeah. wherever. Um, I mean, again, nothing against Fordham or what, but uh, <laughs> love, love all of our great schools. But, it, but the fact of the matter is that he chose uh, you know, in obedience, it chose an obedience to be with the Salvadoran people, mm-hmm. right? At the UCA. And not only to be, because then you could be like, oh, you know, I'm at the UCA, whatever. You know. But not only that, he was like, no, this is this is where I am. He, many of the young Spaniards, like John Sabrino, uh, one of Aya Korea's friends, right? Another Spanish Jesuit who was sent there um, with Aya Korea would, uh, you know, would be yeah i mean it's kind of like this yeah the the mission is to be with with the oppressed and that our university mission is in a constant dialogue uh with the liberation of of oppressed people so they would you know say mass uh with uh, poor communities and and that was huge it's almost like what pope francis says to be honest Mm -hmm. Uh, pope francis has been recently been speaking about like he says he would uh, tell seminarians to go out and like have a day in Buenos Aires, 
right? And you know, do whatever you want in the day. And then he would say, I would look at, he said, I would look at the seminarian's shoes and mm-hmm. see which of the shoes had been muddied progressively, you know, yeah. throughout wow. uh, their time in the seminary, because you can tell by the shoes, how do they spend their free time? Are they yeah. spending their free time with the poor? Or are they spending their free time in the salons, you know, of, yeah, yeah. of, of Buenos Aires, right? So right. I think that's huge. And, and maybe that's a good transition into Romero in the sense that I think that Romero gives us a sense of what leadership maybe is. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe, you know, to some extent, what, what revolutionary leadership looks within the church. Mm-hmm. I think that Romero did uh, maybe two things well you know, in those years following, I mean, he did many things well, but I'll just yeah. summarize it. <laughs> right. uh, you know, he, had a, he had a short amount of time after his conversion, yeah. you could say. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. He had, he had three years. Uh, so what, but I think something that he did in that time would be this combination. Well, the one thing that he always did was that he was personable with uh, mm-hmm. oppressed people. I mean, he, so mm-hmm. people in, in, in the testimonies that you hear, from the people who knew Romero right? and you go to his house and you just, I mean, I don't, I don't know, maybe I'm just projecting, but like you see it in his face. He was someone who loved people. Uh, he cared for people. He would, um, you know, uh, have a special uh, attention, you know, for uh, men in formation, uh, you know, trying to, again, I think cultivate a, a friendliness. I think it's like, I think of sometimes uh, there are stories about church leaders who are sometimes feared right? By their inferiors, right? They're, uh, where is my bishop going to send me? Does my bishop have mine and the people of God's best interests in mind? And it just seems like people with Romero didn't worry about that, right? They, they had the sense that Romero uh, could, could had the best interests of the common good and of the individual in mind and could kind of hold these things in tension. And then I would say, Oh, leadership in this sense. This is the tough one. And it's the, the one that's related to a Korea and that kind of putting your foot down when it comes to donors and different things is that, I mean, you see this, the way that money influences, right. And you yeah. take money from certain groups and it kind of affects what you say, right. Yep. And, uh, you, you begin to take money from certain groups and, and then you speak out, uh, you know, you're taking money from an oil company in order to fund your university or from the the cock brothers, as I like to call them, I guess they're called the Coke. <laughs> That's not how it's spelled. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever they're called. And yeah, the chickens. And they, you know, they give money to all these business schools. All right. Well, how do you expect then our, you know, these business schools to uh, be training people? I remember, you know, one business school I remember hearing about that took money from the these cock brothers and they, the business school then in the, in the, a box, I guess uh, all of the business school students had boxes, uh, uh, like mailboxes. And on day one, when you sign up for the business school, they give you a copy of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. Oh, man. All right. For your day one, you know, reading, you know, come to yeah. class having read The Fountainhead where you're just like, oh, my gosh, the worst, the worst, like uh, death impulses of humanity, like we're yeah. going to kill all of ourselves on this planet are coming out. Right. They, so, the Koch brothers were, they even donated to Catholic University of America, if, if I'm not mistaken. Well, maybe not only that one, but many. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. many. And, yeah. and so, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, I think, you know, we have to now, this is one of the things where I would say at the end of the day, our uh, capitalist system is not going to get us where we want to go. Like the reforming mm-hmm. of the cap- the our, I think that our Catholic universities have something beautiful to offer. Our Catholic schools have something beautiful to offer. Obviously, I work at one, and I think that there's something important going on here. In some ways, it's beautiful that at, at Xavier, the students take theology classes, they take philosophy classes, they take ethics and the moral imagination. So they're being put in touch with these, these great things, which is leading them to reflect on social justice and whatnot. Mm-hmm. That's all great. But... <laughs> uh, if that is happening while simultaneously, you know, many of our universities are having to rely on the very folks who are, it's like just uh, putting money in, you know, the basket with the left hand and then taking money out of the basket with the right hand. Right. And so it's like, at the end of the day, what is going to change? We need to have 
uh, a revolutionary political movement uh, in order to overcome the current barriers to our society. And I think that's what what liberation theology is. Uh, yeah. It's it's the reflection theologically on uh, the signs of the times and yeah. and the signs of the times are calling for quite a bit. Yeah. Someone's got to put mm. their foot down. <laughs> Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, so this reminds me of um, we, so I worked at a parish as a catechetical director for a few years and they were doing, it, it was like the rosary, patriotic rosary. And so they were like, I was like, okay, it's just going to be a few people like doing this dumb thing in the corner of the church but then i like looked through it and it was like it was like a complete co-opting of the rosary and it's like and it's like so it's like 10 decades and then we're gonna read something from a leader an american like leader like thomas jefferson george washington and then one of them was robert e lee and and so i called the pastor like on i called him on his birthday (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, you can't let this happen. And he was like, oh, just like kind of <laughs> pushed it aside. And I'm like, oh, gosh, get some bad. Like, if anything, for the, the fact that like we shouldn't be co-opting our like liturgical traditions in right. any way. Like if you wanna if you wanna do say the rosary for America and then like go to your house and read some Robert E. Lee, I guess, knock yourself out, but don't do it in the sanctuary of the church. <laughs> yeah, that is really bad. That is really bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that I saw online, this this one really, really kind of pissed me off um, in a special way, is that, you know, some uh, on some of the crucifixes, they have kind of a, a stole-like uh, garment, you know, that is wrapped around the, the, the cross, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's white, you know, like a symbol of Jesus's resurrection. Well, I saw one of these stoles that was like the American flag oh, that gosh. was wrapped uh, around the crucifix. Wow. And I just thought to myself, this is the, this is, you know, they were speaking about the antichrist and how he would appear <laughs> like the, I feel like that's yeah, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> it literally is the opposite of Christ, right? It's the, you know, Christ standing uh, crucified by the Roman Empire. I mean, maybe in a sense, it makes sense in that, you know, the Roman flag was, you know, was the one that crucified Jesus, uh-huh. you know, but I don't think that it was meant that way. It was meant to be some yeah, kind yeah, of strange yeah. Like combination is, of these are the American United States is the chosen people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's I think what it was meant. You know, the, the United States is the new Israel. Um, right. And of course, we support the the uh, the Israelis as well. So yes. it's just it's kind of just like it's it's uh, oh you know it's problematic, and yeah. I and I mean that in the sense of the, the anti-Palestinian uh, sense. So I would say you know th- there is the co-opting, and this is precisely that Christo-fascist uh, component mm-hmm. that is being spoken of these days when we think about January sixth, right? Because yeah. January 6th, look, I mean, there's these big ass crosses and crucifixes that you see piling into the uh, the Capitol building. And then you see these signs of, you know, communism is the real coronavirus. You know, I don't know if you saw that, but that was one of the signs. That makes perfect sense. Uh, they both start with the letter C. I get it. Yeah, communism, yeah, <laughs> Corona, and and it's like, well, I don't know, but maybe they should learn more about the communists taking down the czar. I think it yeah. was anti-Corona as an anti-crown. Yeah. So it's just like, oh, look at that. Well, yeah, there was a little Spanish joke there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ruin, but it's just totally absurd, and that's why I think. The, so powerfully the importance of liberation theology, right? Because again, I speak to students at Xavier and staff and faculty at Xavier, and very frequently people come up to me and they say, you know, we know that you're about liberation theology. We love what you're doing. And to be honest, liberation theology is the only thing that keeps me on the Catholic or Christian mm-hmm. train because it's 
that's my Jesus. That's what yeah. I see, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why I read the Bible. That's who I see. That's what I pray to. That's what I'm working for. And I can tap into and, and be in line with that. But yeah, and, when I, yeah. that And that's like Aya Korea and uh, Romero's stories, like really kind of in a way mirror Jesus's story in the gospel oh. where it's like Jesus was standing on the side of the outcasts, mm-hmm. whether and civilly or religiously and he pissed off the people in charge <laughs> and yeah. they killed him for it like and people it, it's like i i i like the uh the hypothetical counterfactual of uh what what if jesus never died on the cross like how would sin have been forgiven that way and it's like it's because of his life his radical lifestyle is part of like what brings about the destruction of sin is by mm-hmm. setting things right that are wrong in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's what Aya said, like in his writings, he talks about sin. You know, we think about sin as, you know, something that I do wrong or something that offends God, but mm-hmm. he goes back to the kind of original biblical, uh, and this is where we see that racehorse month and liberation theology coming together, you know, this mm-hmm. return to the sources, yeah. uh, but saying that, uh, he was saying that basically sin is anti-life, yeah. you know, and grace is life. And so that that's what sin is, is that which takes away, you know, our life, our, our human life, our the divine life within us, of course. And, and so we should view sin in that way. And I think when we do, it helps us have a more robust understanding of the traditional teaching about the sins of omission and whatnot Mm -hmm. is that really the arc of my life should be an arc of grace, right? The things that I'm doing are promoting human life, you promoting human solidarity. And to the extent that that's not happening, you know, that is my sin, you know, my, my non life affirming uh, actions and beliefs and uh, that that's what sin is. So I think absolutely there, there's kind of just a total reimagining, um, and maybe a more authentic, I would say re reimagining yeah. or returning to, uh, what the Bible really teaches about life, right? Cause you're in the garden of Eden. Uh, God is breathing in life, you know, <laughs> and where do they, you know, it's, <laughs> there's the tree of life in there and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they pick from that, and then they're told that they will die, right? So that's the original association is between sin and death. death and yeah. and yeah. and so we should, I think, take that very seriously. Absolutely. Well, well David, um, do you have any other like last thoughts or things that people should know about Romero or Aya Korea before we uh, wrap up? I would say uh, two things. One, I would highly recommend this book. I'll never tire of recommending it. It's the one that I go to for my main source on on these folks, and that is Blood and Ink. Blood and Ink, Ignacio Aya John Sabrino, and the Jesuit Martyrs of the University of Central America by Robert LaSalle Klein and published by Orbis. And I think it is just kind of the gold standard when it comes to scholarship on blood and ink. What were the Mm -hmm. things that Aya Korea and the liberation theologians were writing and saying and publishing that was leading to their deaths? And then the other thing I would say would be a sincere thank you for this opportunity to have this conversation with y'all. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Some laughs and also, yeah, some moments where, you know, you, you hear these stories and you just think to yourself, wow, these were great people, uh, who we can imitate. And so it touches, you know, I feel like, uh, as, as they say, you know, maybe in a good movie, you know, I feel like I've laughed and I've cried in this conversation. (laughs) So I, I thank you for that opportunity. Our pleasure. Yeah. And we'll, we'll link to blood and ink in the the show notes, as they say (laughs) in podcast lingo, um, an official thing. (laughs) Yeah. That's what they say. Look at the show notes. Yeah. yeah. Show notes. <laughs> um, David, where where can we find you? Where can people follow you? All that that good stuff. <laughs> sure. So on Twitter, the Liberation Theology Podcast. And then also <laughs> today, 
we have launched an Instagram page at Liberation (laughs) Theology Podcast. And we want to do the Instagram because there's so many images, you know, Mm -hmm. that need to be included about liberation theology. Also have some book recommendations, some liberationist uh, quotes and Bible passages in there. So uh, check out that it just launched launched today and we have four initial posts. So uh, All right. Awesome. Yeah. Well, nice. I'll hop on there and follow. <laughs> All right. Well, David, thanks again. Um, and maybe if we if there's a season four of Los Nazarenos, we'll we'll have you back and we'll we'll have another fun conversation. I love that. Thank All you. Right. All right. Thanks, David. Thanks.